You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And so, what do we all think of the news then? Peter Capaldi is the 12th Doctor. <laughs> Get yeah, in. I'll go for that. As long you as don't he believe swears. me. <laughs> I don't think he'll be swearing. Of course, at the point of recording this, we have no idea if Peter Capaldi is the 12th Doctor. But the word all over the internet is that he's cast as the Twelfth Doctor, and possibly even it might be announced this weekend. Uh, that's what everybody's saying. So, I mean, really seriously, what does anybody think? I think it's no. a fantastic actor. I think it's an unusual choice. It w- it won't be him. <clears throat> it just won't be. Why do you think that? Um, just because of who he is. As you know, he's only appealing to a certain amount of people. I don't think he has that broad appeal <clears throat> spectrum that the, that they're looking for. Well, I don't know, you say that, but, I mean, going over the past Doctors, who did they appeal to until they were cast as the Doctor, presumably? If Peter Capaldi's got anywhere close to being cast as the Doctor, they'd have screen-tested him with some dialogue to see if he can do it, to see what his appeal can be. It's quite a left-field choice. I mean, if they do it, I, I applaud their bravery. I really do. Yeah. I'm assuming there won't I mean, be quite so much effing and jeffing as he does in the thick of it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Are you just going to keep on bringing that up? No. Oh, if he's the doctor, <laughs> there'll be you know, like there's the YouTube videos of where they dub over James Earl mm. Jones from other movies over the top of Darth Vader. Oh yeah. And there will be Doctor Who clips with him doing the thick of it over the top of Doctor Who clips. <laughs> yeah. But hey, let's be honest. He's already been in Doctor Who. Yeah. And the part he played in Doctor Who was completely different from the part he plays in the thick of it. This is true. Yeah, and, and Torchwood, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was And great, Local yeah. Hero, one of my all-time favourite films. So, there you go. So tonight we'll talk about the 12th Doctor. Okay, yeah, actually, tonight... <laughs> um, <clears throat> an email to kick us off to get us into the swing of tonight's episode... From Steve from Manchester, what a brilliant doctor Christopher Eccleston was. This isn't me just backing another mank. Christopher Eccleston's phony professional northerner shtick is the one thing that annoys me about him. Series 1, to me, was the perfect self-contained Doctor Who series in the sense of a journey both for the Doctor, for Rose and for the viewer. I suspect that this is because Russell T. Davis had had years to perfect his fantasy idea of a great Doctor Who series and hadn't yet begun to believe the show's own publicity and to become a little slapdash. He had to take great pains with every detail in the days when we didn't know if New Who would flop. Christopher Eccleston's debut and departure, trauma and redemption, bookending the series, obviously helped to make it seem much more of a coherent whole. Eccleston brought us what the Doctor had been lacking since the departure of Tom Baker, and also lacking since the end of 
season one a dark and brooding basis for the characterization of the Doctor. Yes, there was a bit of larking about, but it arose out of the brooding rather than being switched on and off as if in the tenant as it was in the tenant era. <clears throat> now I'm giddy. Now I'm sad. Now I'm giddy. Now I'm sad. Now I'm giddy. Now I'm sad. I'm so, I apologise to the listeners. I've got a bit of a cold, so my reading skills have taken a bit of a nose dive. <laughs> Nose Nose dive, there you go. Um, Steve carries on. With Eccleston, we got small and intimate acting rather than the broad brushstrokes of characterisation we've tended to get since then. You can see that in the scripting, you can see that in the scripting of Series 1, Series 1 was full of examples of huge complexities of emotion and meaning being contained in brief sentences of about three or four words rather than the hundred miles per hour babble the scripts can often veer into these days. Um, Actually, Steve comes back and qualifies that a bit more, but I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, He says, I suspect that had David Tennant been the ninth Doctor, his post-Time War trauma would have been expressed through loving panning shots around him, standing with his hands in his pockets, his feet spread unnecessarily wide, and his jaw jutting out. How would End of Time have concluded? My planet's gone, Rose. Burp. Before it's time. Burp. I'm left wandering (laughs) alone because there's no one left. Burp. Uh, actually, maybe when he said how would end of time have concluded, maybe perhaps meant the parting of the ways. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> there are actually a number of moments during series one when I have to blink back the tears. Manly tears, he says, that is, not girly sobs. I did so on first viewing, and I still do so on rewatching. Never happened to me before or since series one. That surely signifies a depth of writing, a power of performance, and a great relationship between the Doctor and Rose. To this day, the point where the Doctor's hologram turns its head to look Rose in the eyes still sends me scrabbling for the Kleenex. <laughs> JR. He says, take Your your hand off that double entendre boing (laughs) button. (laughs) I think that's addressed at you, Simon, but also at you, Mark. What? I have to... Well, you just said JR. Exactly. You were obviously reading the double entendre, Well, you left that gap there hoping someone would fill it. No, I was just... I was just reading ahead through the next sentence. <laughs> Which I usually do much faster, but my brain's on slow tonight. I've just had a really long day in my job. Hey, we as might a even be on the same wavelength at one point. What Mark? Uh, well, Steve and I. No, the whole four of us. If your if your brain slowed down, then we might even. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, I don't think that'll ever happen. No, my brain may not. have slowed down, but it's still working. <laughs> series one still boasts the finest series finale, although series five comes close and the greatest two-parter being Stephen Moffat's of the last 50 years. And that two-parter is the closest Doctor Who has ever come to achieving an epic scale for all the huge CGI landscapes and armies we've had over recent years. Even the episodes people tend to pan the most, farting in Downing Street, for example, were tremendous fun. The long game was the only turkey, which is some achievement, and perhaps the best punch-the-air moment in Doctor Who, combined... Combined with a punch battle noir galactica on the nose moment, coward any day. Such a pity that Christopher Eccleston left. What might we have got from a second season? And even better, he hasn't pandered to fandom since his departure. Um, I'll just quickly go into what Steve said about the three or four word dialogue that Russell T. Davis did in the first series, as opposed to those great big long speeches about I'm the Doctor, I'm 900 years old, and I'm going to fart until you go away, kind of thing. He says, 
I don't know if the bit about huge complexity containing three or four words makes sense. I meant stuff like at the end of Dalek, where the Doctor says, the Time Wars, the time wars ended, I win. How about that? And that how about that contains oceans of meaning that you couldn't get in a whole paragraph of the Doctor beating his breast with self-pity and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so, so sorry. And then he gives a few more examples. For instance, in the Doctor dances, Rose, what's that noise? Jack, the all-clear. The Doctor, I wish. Lesser writers would have the Doctor saying, Oh, it may be the all-clear for the air raid, but we're very far from being in the clear with this plague. Over-egging the irony. Two words is all it takes for Russell, uh, not for Russell, for Christopher Eccleston's Doctor in that story. Um, <clears throat> Jack, much bigger on the inside. Doctor, you'd better be. It's utterly wonderful, even if it does rely on Jack not saying it's much bigger on the inside. And perhaps the greatest example of all, allowing the audience to do its own thinking, when Jack's using his blaster to open the child's room in The Empty Child, mm-hmm. or, or <clears throat> actually in uh, The Doctor Dances, Rose, what's wrong with your sonic screwdriver? Doctor, nothing. <laughs> <clears throat> we may have had it since Series 1, but I haven't really noticed. It may seem a bit obscure as a detail, but I get definite stirrings in the trouser department when the script or the ideas are done with such care and loving attention to detail. If you've ever seen the bit... I wrote on my blog about the fif- blog about the 51st century church's Alpha et Obiga logo. It's the same thing, ignoring the fact that the audience would be perfectly happy with 90% and pushing for 100%. This is what I adore about se- Series 1. It gives so much without ever patronising the audience or using the It's Only a Kids Show excuse to ignore plot and characterisations whole. holes. <clears throat> anyway, Steve from Manchester there talking about the ninth doctor and to be frank pretty much summed up a lot of my feelings about the ninth doctor so i think we'll probably just call it a day now and we'll get to bed everybody happy with that yeah my name was lee (laughs) my name was jr i'm not going anywhere okay let's go back to 2003 you can't tell the story of the ninth doctor without telling the story of the 18 months prior really can you which I mean, is what all was in uh, all in dot who magazine now so we didn't have to talk about it yeah funnily enough i was just <laughs> saying i was just <laughs> thinking before we started we were going to have to talk about this and just by sheer coincidence there's doctor who magazine doing pretty much the same thing yeah. do the three of you remember where you were when you heard what you were doing was it a you know jfk moment well you told me believe in the library that's the first i really properly heard of it because i ignore everything in the papers and had done for the last 14 years or whatever um yeah so i was in the library and you came in and told me and i went yeah whatever (laughs) right i think i was at work and i heard it on the radio and kind of did a double take didn't quite believe it had come back but yeah yeah, Lee, apart from all facetiousness aside, what really was your thought when you realised it was true? When I, when I actually realised, well, you you looked at me and said, no, no, really, it is. And I kind of looked at you and thought, oh, I haven't had this reaction from you before about you know, rumours, so maybe it is. So you got me a little bit excited, and then I had to kind of do my own work and found out that, yeah, yeah, it was coming back. And I nearly wet myself on the spot especially going on the internet and seeing all the forums springing up and 
everything just go mad. Yeah, mm. I got very Mom. excited. In fact, I emailed. Um, I might have been an email to Russell T Davis. Or it might have been a, a reaction to the forum because I think he put something up like, "What would you like to see in Doctor Who?" And it was just really just this, this bland kind of you know canvas, a blank canvas rather. And I just put on there something like, "Well, just keep the Doctor uh, and the TARDIS and." And oh, brilliant and suggestions and the, and there, Lee. And the assistant, but ditch everything else, meaning ditching all the past and getting rid of the Time Lords <clears> and all that. Just have him, you know, bumbling around. That's so all effectively, Lee, what you're saying is the success of New Who is all down to you. Uh, yeah, basically. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's the funny thing, actually. After Christopher Eccleston's year, all the past sort of came back mm. to haunt the Tenth Doctor, really, didn't it? <clears throat> <clears throat> but I suppose that's for another time. Mark, how long did it take to sink in? Oh, hello. Oh, that's the children trying to get in. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, go and kick their butts, Mark. <laughs> um, it's uh, it wasn't quite. Um, uh, I don't think I was in a sort of raptures or whatever. I was just kind of stunned. Um, um but yeah, it kind of it sank in pretty quickly, and I was just. Voraciously searching the internet for any snippets of news that I could get my hands on. Brett, are you there? I am. Yeah. <laughs> Brett, Simon, <laughs> I just ripped the microphone back from Lee. Oh, uh, good. So, when do you know where you were? When you what you were doing? When you heard? Do you know? What? I don't. I don't. I think. I think. However, I read it. It was probably in a tabloid newspaper or something like that. In which case, I didn't. Probably, yeah, I probably Pinch didn't react to it in the gravitas that it deserved. Um, doubled with the fact that at that point I'd become very detached from the whole Hoovian thing. I'd stopped reading the magazine. I was, I hadn't so much forgotten about the program, but I'd, I'd kind of put it in a place in my memory, which was, you know, that was Doctor Who. That was what it was. So when I heard it was coming back, my initial reaction was with a certain amount of yeah what yeah what are they going to do with it and when you found out christopher eccleston was the doctor and then subsequently that billy piper was going to be the companion what did you make of that well the billy, billy piper thing i only knew as a pop star so that was with a certain certain amount of trepidation uh christopher eccleston fantastic um and i do remember doing my homework on russell t davis and watching some casanova just to see you know what it was all about, and um, I'd seen a bit of uh, Queer as Folk as well. Um, and it, it, you just didn't know what it was going to be like. I, yeah. I, as I say, I've become so detached from the whole thing that I, I suppose, in some respects, I just expected I, I didn't expect anything really. So that first watching was a real pure watching. I mean, there was the trials beforehand. Um, which looked great. It looked polished. Yeah. It set the and tone, didn't it? It it did. Yeah. Um. So yeah, for me, it was a it was a fresh experience. I I think I'd become so far away from fandom at that point that I was watching it as almost like a new viewer. Um, and so in that respect, I was able to not have any preconceptions, and I wasn't going to turn around to it and say, "Oh, God, they're not doing this. They're not doing that." Um, I remember being quite nervous when the first episode went out because I wasn't really that sure what to expect and I was dreading it was going to be awful, um, but I was pleasantly surprised. 
<clears throat> well, we'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're you, right, you're right, because we're, you we're three talking. are always jumping the gun. Yeah, aren't we you? are. We are jumping the gun. It's um, like not one of you knows how to stay with a topic no. until we've all had a chance no, to right. work our way through it. Eccleston and Piper, Sorry, Mr. Rawlings. Well, Eccleston and Piper. Well, when Eccleston was mentioned. Suddenly, there was weight behind the actor, and I, you know, I felt that straight away. And I knew Russell T. Davis did a good. He did the second coming was something I really enjoyed, and I thought, wow, if he can take this supernatural bent to reality and urban kind of culture, it's going to really, really work. And having Christopher Eccleston as one of the most kind of miserable actors—no, not miserable actor—he's an actor that plays miserable people, like in Jude the Obscure and stuff like that. Oh thought, yeah, serious, serious stuff. Then it's like they're taking it seriously, and suddenly I was really excited. But at the same time, I was still holding back because, as a Doctor Who fan, we are so used to disappointment and things going wrong. Until that trailer hit, I had no confidence that it was still coming back. It was, it was a bizarre thing. Even though I believed that it was being made, I still thought anything could happen. Spanner in the works. Eccleston could It's die. not going to turn up on the telly. <laughs> you know, anything could happen. One of the, one <clears throat> the stars could fall under a truck. Anything could happen. Um, and then when Billy Piper was mentioned, I just thought, what are they playing at? What's this all about? And I... I think it was Russell T. Davis was writing in Doctor Who magazine at the time, his production notes. Um, I think that was the time when I got convinced by him even more so with Billy Piper and just thought, do you know what, I really trust this bloke. He's he's a fan, he knows exactly what's going on, he's intelligent, he's clever, and he's working with the you know Jane Tranter and Julie Gardner, and they're just amazing people. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to have to kick back and let them do it, and let's see what happens. I wasn't... I wasn't 100% convinced with Christopher Eccleston until, surprisingly enough, Billy Piper was announced. Because when they said Christopher Eccleston as a doctor, I thought, okay, he's a decent actor, but I just couldn't see how he could play the doctor. And then when Billy Piper was announced, everybody thought, oh, JR's going to be absolutely chuffed about that because Billy Piper was right underneath Phil Collins in my estimation of her <laughs> pop career and she was somebody Sorry, I Phil, famously had never had anything good to say about but as soon as they said her I could see what they were going to do with him and I could see how the dynamic was going to work and that's when I could see what they were going to do with the program and I just thought yes that is going to work that's a brilliant idea and it was exactly as I thought it was going to be. Mark, Billy Piper and Christopher Eccleston. I think they're a great pairing. Um, I also think to a lesser or greater degree... No, no, not on screen when you first heard the names. <sighs> um, Christopher Eccleston, I'd not really seen him that much. I'd seen him in 28 Days Later in a relatively small part. Um, I knew a bit of his work and I thought it was an interesting choice. I thought it was a, quite a, a big name. Um, at that point. So I was quite looking forward to it. Billy Piper, I did have my reservations, I have to be honest, before I saw her on screen. Um, but she more than proved herself. So <clears throat> it's the 25th of March, 2005. 24 hours to go. What on earth are we all thinking then? I was worried. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was sat there uh, waiting to, to watch the programme and quite nervous, expecting it to be, I don't know, I was hoping for the best, but I was kind of expecting it to be a bit wobbly 
um, but I, I was quite impressed with what I saw. It was um, Brett. It was a bizarre moment oh. in my household. Sorry, you finished, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously, before that point, family viewing on Saturday evenings had disappeared completely from the from the shelf. You know, in the eighties, sixties, seventies, whatever, we all sat in front of the television set in the evening, watched Grandstand, Bells Will Brush, Doctor Who, whatever, right? But um, it disappeared, and then suddenly there was this program that everybody was really excited about, and they all got together and watched it, and. Um, and I wanted, you know, I wanted it to be a family experience. I wanted my kids to watch it. I wanted my wife to enjoy it because she was a, you know, a big doubter. Um, and I just thought, you know, this is a time. We need to have a good family time, get together, blah, blah, blah. It was so hard just to try and get everybody sitting in the right place. The kids throwing their food everywhere. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? It was it's just like it was almost impossible. And, and coupled with the fact we weren't even in my house, we had to go down to somebody else's house for the weekend. And they were there with their kids. And it was like, oh, my God. You know, this is... The program I've been waiting for for so long to come back. It's got to be perfect. And there are children throwing things around and people, adults talking over the program. And I'm sitting there going, no, no. And then on top of that, Graham Norton starts talking. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh my him. God, it's all going to fall apart. But uh, by the end uh, of the program, every single person in that room was hooked. Everybody from, you know, grandma to smallest child. The power of who? Well, I felt quite Simon. proud. Simon. Mm, mm. I was sat there with my girlfriend at the time and her daughter. And I'd sort of said, I really want to see this. I really want to see this. Uh, and thankfully, we all sat down there specifically to watch it in her front room. And um, initially... It started and I thought, oh, this is polished. And then the music came on and I thought, oh, no, is this is this really what it's going to be like? Because I really did think that was awful. But then it got better and better and better. And then Mickey came on. I thought, OK, OK. But the best thing about it was it came to the end and I turned around to the two of them and said, did you enjoy that? And they went, yeah, it's really good. And I almost didn't believe it. I said, are you just saying that? They said, no, no, we really did enjoy it. And it was that was, for me was a revelation because it had always been a very personal thing. You never sat and watched. Mm. I hadn't sat down and watched Doctor Who with anyone apart from my sister, maybe when we were pre, in our pre-tens, you know, before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in our house, <clears throat> it was a fairly similar situation. There was me and my housemate who were both old school Doctor Who fans. And the others in the house were kind of interested to see it, but they weren't really into it in any big way. Yeah. And it was that sort of trepidation of, Oh God, is it going to be really awful? So everyone sat around the living room watching it, and uh, it went down a storm. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I was living by myself at the time, so I was able to watch it three times that <laughs> evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sad confessions. So it worked. The first episode, it worked, and not only did it work for uh, Doctor Who fans. <clears throat> in fact it probably worked less well for Doctor Who fans than it did for the general public absolutely yeah I think so <clears throat> I think Doctor Who fans probably wanted it to take itself a bit more seriously you know what though I absolutely loved that it didn't I absolutely adore that episode it's fun, it's fast, it's furious it's frenetic and it never takes its foot off the pedal and it never takes its foot off the comedy pedal either and it's got Autons that was, yeah. that, that was a big thing actually Autons. because I thought yeah, I see how I corrected myself. 
Um, <laughs> that was a big thing that they didn't choose one of the big monsters, but they did choose an iconic monster for people of a From certain age because they were they were perfect for the story and they were kind of at that right level to say this is Doctor Who. We're going to use a big chunk of what was great about <clears throat> Doctor Who, and it immediately launched into that thing of taking the familiar and making it nightmarish, and it just it hit the tone right on everything, didn't it? And in fact, the, th- the funny thing is, there's, there's kind of a signal there in the Autons for something that is a theme in that first series, and that is the theme of zombies. The theme of The Walking Dead, Mm -hmm. if you want to put it more uh, succinctly, because almost every story in that first series has something that's dead, that's animated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Almost every story. Maybe it's Russell T. Davis has got an an, an obsession with uh, zombies. I don't know. It's a really funny thing, though, if you look at it, because zombies are so not what you'd expect to be feeding to children. And yeah, here, here you are. Slightly poor choice of words there, JR. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> what year did, <laughs> what year did uh, Shaun of the Dead come out, even? It must have been about the same sort of time, about I think. 2003, yeah. I think 2004. Maybe just before then, mm. yeah. Mm. But it's just this weird thing there where there's yeah. like, you know, animated cadavers, more or less, in just about every story. But maybe it's as simple as you want to instigate the kids... You know, did you watch Doctor Who last night? Yeah, I'm an Orton. I'm coming to get you. And so they all walk around like zombies and that sort of thing. Yeah, but it's... you know what my theory is? Is that because he's made it... Well, what he's done is he's made it funny for the adults. Because that, that was the thing that drew in the non-Doctor Who fans. Because of those 11 million people who watched that first episode, right? You've got 20,000 Doctor Who fans and... 10,980,000 just general public. And the thing that draws them in is the humour, right? Mm-hmm. That's the grown-ups. The grown-ups love to watch something funny. But you know what kids like to watch? Something a little bit naughty. Something that makes them feel like they're getting away with something. And if you stick... I mean, it's not as obvious as Russell T. Davis saying to the kids, right, I'm putting zombies in this, but it's four kids... So you've got something that I've smuggled into the story that your parents probably wouldn't let you watch if it hadn't been for the fact that I've told them that this story is for kids. But, you know, it's not as straightforward as that. But by sticking zombies in every story, you've kind of got something in every episode where the kids can go into the school on Monday and kind of give each other a look in the playground and say, you know, we just watched, you know, basically the equivalent of Night of the Living Dead on Saturday evening at 7 o'clock on BBC One. <laughs> That's true. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, then? you're taking away that... all the blood and things. But there is that a moment when Clive gets annihilated, and every time I watch that, I feel so sorry for him. And it's a really horrible moment, you know. He gets properly killed, um, and you see the reaction of his wife and his kid, and it's like, Whoa, this is a bit heavy. But instantly you're into, you know, shots with Jackie and brides walking towards her and her stumbling about, and it's just kind of funny again but uh it's a a brilliant episode and do you know what i played it today i watched it today for the first time in two years um with uh my son at the same you know that first time and also my daughter because you know i was thinking hoping that girls would like it did um and it was very interesting because i sat there with my son and then daughter walks through and she goes oh i like this one i'll sit down with you 
watch it. And I thought, what? She hasn't done that for the last four years of Doctor Who. But anyway, so she sat and watched it all the way through. And they both absolutely loved it and said, I've forgotten how good this is. And, yeah. you know, that's my son as well. And he watches Doctor Who now. And he, he commented and said, Doctor Who just seems like a TV program now. Whereas then it seemed really, really different and special. Well, that was a bit sad, actually. <clears> but um, also, I know, think it lost that after the first year, though. I think that's one of the really special things about the first year is that there is something different about that first year. And I'm not saying, when I say it lost it after the first year, I'm going to say, oh, the first year's great, everything else is crap. But there's something about that first year when it's so entirely unexpected. And before you get used to the way they do it. Yeah, you're looking out for the tropes and the their tricks yeah. and things after but yeah, by the, the first season. <clears throat> when when you get to the se- Sorry, go on. Well, I was only going to say, when you get to the second series, and it starts with, you know, future, past, modern day, you're kind of, oh yeah, we're on this roundabout again. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there's a certain amount of treading water, that I was going to say. Mm. It, it reaches that point where they go up the incline, but they're trying really hard. They're trying to essentially make it work, and he's had all this time to, to work out, right, what we're going to do with that first series, what... what you know, and it's bound to be like that. It's first album syndrome, isn't it? First and second well, the, album. Yeah. The thing about that first series, well, there's two things going on in that first series. I'll come back to the other one. But one of the things that's going on in that series is that almost every episode is pushing the character of the Doctor on. Uh, not necessarily in really obvious ways, but uh, in some kind of... Because he's a new character, essentially. I mean, every time the Doctor changes, he kind of becomes a new character anyway. But in the eyes of almost everybody watching, he's an entirely new character. They've not seen the old Doctor Who. So you don't just put the Doctor on the screen and say, right, this is the Doctor you've been watching for years. Notice how the quirky little changes since he changed the last time, like you might do with Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy or whatever. But you're actually giving an entire audience a new character that you have to teach them how to love. So that entire first series, there are several arcs going on there, not just Bad Wolf, but there's an arc for the character of the Doctor where he goes from the guy in the first episode who says, you know, this is what life is like with the Doctor, grab my hand and let's run. And then by the end of the episode, he's like a nervous teenager standing in the doorway of the TARDIS saying to Rose, you know, do you want to maybe come along? And by the end of the series, is the guy who can turn around to the Daleks and say, F you, basically. You know what I mean? His mm. character, the audience have had to grow with the character, but the characters had to grow with the audience as well. So you get to that place at the end of the first series where it's so established and established enough that by the second series, you basically can dread water, which you couldn't have done in that first year. <clears throat> it's so clever, the... Um... Let's face it, we're kind of dropped into the story at a funny place, aren't we? Where this this big thing has happened, the time war's happened. And the Ninth Doctor is essentially his, his personal... He is a product of what's happened to him. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting about that, that particular Doctor. You get Doctors who come along where you say, right, what's David Tennant going to do with the Doctor? What's Tom Baker going to do with the Doctor? But Christopher Eccleston's character is based primarily around the storyline of that he is a, he is a product of war he is post-war doctor it's and quite stripped this... back isn't he it's kind of yeah you've got the you've got the sort of nucleus of what makes him the doctor but you haven't got quite all of the eccentricities you get in a lot of the the old classic series doctors 
Yeah, he is. He's very stripped back. <clears throat> Apart from the and in a way, game. that's a. I mean, that ties in with what Simon was just saying. The post-war doctor would be stripped mm. back. He yeah. would, li- if you were involved in in something of that magnitude, you do lose your eccentricities. You become something of a shell of a person. Mm. And so, you know, what I was saying about the character of the Doctor's growing with that series, it's almost like he's growing back into being himself. Well, he warms to Rose, doesn't he, as the series progresses? Yeah, because that's the other thing that's going on in that first series. And I've said this before on this podcast. It's the X Factor thing, isn't it? Where Rose has to prove herself. Every week she has to overcome a different obstacle until she gets to the place where she gets to the finale. And, you know, we find out whether we're going to be buying a CD of her at Christmas. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That's that's Rose's arc. Yeah. <clears throat> Rose's arc is proving herself worthy of the Doctor. The Doctor's arc is proving that the character is worthy of an audience. So you start the, steri- you start the series with this very tight-lipped character who, <clears throat> you know, he does the occasional grin and makes the occasional joke, but you're never quite sure with that character, and gradually across the course of the series. And like um, Steve from Manchester said in his email, that bit with the hologram, hmm. you know, by, the, by you get, the time you get to that episode, you believe it's the same man that it always was. Whereas if it hadn't been called Doctor Who in that first episode, apart from the obvious signifiers, like things like the TARDIS and the Autons, but you know what I mean? If it hadn't been called Doctor Who in that first episode, they could have made a version of that character and you would never have known. He was kind of the broken clown, wasn't he, though? When when he was humorous, he um, absolutely... Overdid it. Yeah, yeah, he's he's covering something up. Like a defense mechanism. On the inside, Mm. he's crying. You know, it's, it's corny, but it's true. And how many yeah. com- how many comedians do we know who you know people like Spike Milligan and Stephen Fry where you you've got this these polar opposites and that's also going it's, mm. it's so clever I mean maybe it's a happy accident I don't know but it works so well mm. it also feels that- a little bit like as he gets towards the end of the series it's like he can finally let the past go oh, no. and just except be the he doctor does, again. of course does he well I no gonna- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to agree but- with them I was going to say the same thing as Simon strangely enough just then but also with the added flavour of the fact that we get shown the fact that he has regenerated recently not necessarily in that story or just mm. before it but recently because it's the first time he sees his face because he goes on yeah. his ears um, and you kind of think well did he get the briefing of the broken clown thing which I think is probably more likely um, or, or did he have that and also maybe listen you just regenerated you trying out new things you could try smiling and joking and and then being serious and playing with yeah cards, that works you know so maybe he had that's that what it feels well. like isn't it It does it does it's almost like he's trying out his new body as well the scene in uh rose the one that a lot of people have a problem with where he's in the living room and he flicks through the magazine and um i don't know heat and he says and you know he flicks through the book and says oh read that or great book or whatever it is and people say wow that's just silly isn't it and it almost feels to me like he's trying on being the doctor no sillier than tom baker dressing up in a clown outfit really yeah but no no my point is it feels like to me that that character is trying on being who he is flexing it's like he's forgotten who he is and he's just and he's done that not because that's what he felt like doing he's done that because he's he's felt like 
that's what he felt like he ought to be doing. He's overcompensating. Um, yeah, you get the impression that whatever he's been doing, he well, hasn't, no, he hasn't even... been social. He hasn't been a social doctor up to that point. It may even be that he's not even looked in a mirror. He may have been active for a fair amount of time and never even looked in a mirror, because there's. Um, he's been grounded by Rose. Is what you're trying to you say? I, th- I think so. Yeah, and and you do that. You know, some people go in, walk into a room of people they don't know, and they just cower in the corner but he's not going to do that he's going to go in there and, and be fairly full-on and let's not forget when he first meets rose the first thing he does after all that's over and done with is he tells her right go back to your life that's that's enough now go on go back and, and do what you do i'm going to carry on on my own he was being stealth doctor when we first saw him he was doing all this thing with the autons without anyone else's involvement that's possibly the way he'd operated up to that point that's how i see it anyway <laughs> Well, I guess we may find out in the next episode. Funny enough, you're saying about that. Um, I, I think in much the same way, this this idea of... I, I'm, I have preconceived ideas about John Hurt's Doctor that he is the war doctor, in the much the yeah. same way as Christopher Eccleston is the post-war doctor. Again, you've got this character who is born of the situation he's in. And... I find that fascinating, you know, that, that does Paul well, McGann regenerate yeah. into John Hurt, and he has to be John Hurt's doctor in order to do what he did, and then to move on. It's quite... I, I, well, I guess we'll find out, but, I mean, you would have to assume that the doctor didn't regenerate twice in the Time War. So, I mean, John Hurt's doctor presumably had a relatively normal doctorhood for a length of time before the time war happens it's just that he's the doctor who has the willpower to do it we'll soon see yeah hard to say really you know going back to something you said way earlier simon uh about doing your homework first thing i did when i heard russell t davis was going to be in charge was i went online and got a copy of damaged goods to you know the new adventure he wrote years ago to see if i could uh get a clue about how he might be writing Doctor Who from that. And I have to say, I thought, oh my God, really? They're not going to put this on at seven o'clock at night, are yeah, they? Yeah, drug dealers and stuff. Yeah. And, Walking uh, Dead. Well, all sorts. Well, yeah. Oh, Walking Dead, yeah. And Sink Estate, Council Estate, whatever you want to call it. The Tyler's. Yeah. Tyler's family, twi- uh, complicated family relationships. It's all in there. It's just that that story is told you know, it's such a dark story that's being told. And the twist that comes in the end of it is a very dark twist indeed. And yet, actually, Russell T. Davis does come up with that stuff by the time you get to the end of David Tennant. So, you know, he did smuggle it in there in the end. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I love the <clears throat> second episode, I have to say. I th- I think the second episode is more... And I was about to say more important. It's not more important than the first one. That's a silly thing to say, but it is just as important in its own way. I think to establish the obviously the relationship with Rose. Well, no, I think what the second episode, what the first episode does, is establish the characters, and by establishing the characters, establishes what kind of a relationship there's a potential for them to have. I think what the second episode does is establishes the program. Yeah, the first step. The first episode is like, it could be anything. It could be Randall and Hopkirk deceased. It could be the Avengers. It could be anything. The second episode could only be Doctor Who, really. Am I right in saying they blew most of the budget on that second episode? Well, I wouldn't say blew most of the budget, but they certainly put a lot aside to make sure they could pull it off. I think 
I think it was well worth doing because that's the moment I truly fell in love with the series. Again, if you see what I mean, I'd watched the yeah. first one and said, "Yeah, that's great. I'm glad they glad they brought it back. It's passable, and you know, I really like it." But the second one came back, and that was the very first time I had an emotional response to Doctor Who, ever. I think uh, that's because you're a big Star Wars fan. It was like a big cantina scene. I thought it was more Douglas Adams. No, he's talking about the Tears for a Time Lord oh, at the true. end, you twit. The what? Tears for a Time Lord? Yeah, when he's talking about the emotional response. Oh, at least no. I think that's what he's talking about, aren't you, Simon? Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the tears. Oh, my God, you had forgotten about that. Lee, pass the microphone back since, to Simon. I've just asked him a question. Since when do you get a Doctor Who episode that literally makes you think about it for a week afterwards? I think that's the first time that's, that had ever happened to me. I've loved Doctor Who, but it's only for the period it's on the, on the screen, and obviously there are certain things with the monsters I like, and I used to do the drawings and things like that, but certainly as an episode that makes you, literally makes you think about things. And I well, don't, I, I suppose, I don't well, think, the old series. I don't think <clears throat> it ever touched on the emotional aspect of time travel. This whole business yeah. of... Yeah, jiggery-pokery. Well, you explain that in a minute. What I mean is... The, the whole conversation about chips, the chips conversation, um, the, the whole idea that oh my god, I'm dead now. I don't think that's ever been that ever been touched on before. No, not really. I think um, I know exactly what you mean. And there's that the jiggery pokey comment was about the mobile. She could call her mum way in the future, um, and it's like oh my god, she's still alive on the phone yet she's not there. You know now because this time she's not around and i'm not around and yeah it, i don't think he ever played with that before and lovely deep moment actually and it didn't need to be dwelt upon it was enough you know sitting on the steps and they have a little tiff as well which is quite fun ready so what was great was having a proper villain in the form of cassandra i mean it, yeah it was a murder mystery wasn't it so he had all that going on so it certainly you know even though it was deep it wasn't gonna the kids weren't gonna watch it and go oh, I'm a bit bored with this because there was little spiders and there was you know so whichever way you look at that i think i think it's an incredibly strong episode and <clears throat> are there any episodes in that series that we think were there just to fill time that didn't really accomplish anything well, you going back to what i said about you know i think every i think every episode there fulfills a function yeah. but you want us to say the long game don't you this is like no, QI. absolutely not. Well, no, 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 that's no, building no. up for the finale, is <clears throat> Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, like long that. game's absolutely tied in well, to the story the arc, isn't it? Yeah, it is. A, it is part of the story arc, isn't it? It's very important. It just, it yeah. just feels like flim flam in some ways to a lot of people. Um, but no, I think I think it's quite an important episode. It also shows um, about you know who he picks for his companions because of Adam and things like that. So no, they all they all need to be there. I mean, they must have been worked out within an inch of their life, actually. Otherwise, um, they wouldn't be on screen, would they? The one story that I was thinking of is perhaps Aliens of London. Oh, I agree. And I know okay. a lot of people dislike that. Well, you agree that it's not there for a purpose, but I think it's there as a consolidation before things move on. I think what you get is <clears throat> you get Rose to bring the character of Rose into the Doctor's orbit. You get one in the future and one in the past to demonstrate to Rose what the story is going to be. And then you get the big two-parter set on modern-day Earth when you consolidate what your statement is with the series, and then you get Dalek where you change it up. 
It's also their first and attempt I think... at creating a new classic monster, if you see what I mean, as well. Well, it was. So. And I have to be honest, we're not here to talk about whether we like an episode or not. We're here to talk about that sort of thrust of the series, really. We will do an episode later on where we go through the stories in order and talk about whether we think they're individually any good or not. What I, what I really liked, um, and not talking about the episode necessarily, but it's Rose's reaction to coming back to Earth in modern day. And um, is, that, is that the one where she comes back and it's a year late? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's how another good thing is, they hadn't addressed. How good is that? She comes back mm. a year late, her boyfriend's accused of murder, you know, her mum's gone to spare, she thinks she's you know, it's fantastic. I think it's a lovely, great idea and it really forwards the um you know, the kind of thinking of time travel can be is brilliant, but it can also be very mucked up and you have to be dead careful about being involved with this bloke. Um and you know, when she makes that decision to go with him and she packs well this time and you know, you know, after those two episodes, like you say, it's consolidated. The series can go forward. We're off. We're off in adventures. She's she's had a little tester. She's passed it. We're going forward. It's going to be great now. And then Dalek hits. It's like the end of the auditions process. And now from Dalek onwards, you're into the uh, live rounds. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying to carry on with my metaphor. Mr. Brett, you're back at the microphone. I am. Do you want me to say um, <clears throat> well, anything. What were we talking about? Well, uh, obviously with Dalek, you've got, I think the most important thing in that is the relationship between the Doctor and the Dalek. I don't think it's ever been as focused as that. There was literally one Dalek, one Doctor. What yeah, but what I'm saying is we're talking about the thrust of the series. Mm. We're talking about what Dalek does for the story of series one, which Ooh. is less to do with the Doctor and the Dalek and more to do with the you know, the dynamic between the species yeah, and yeah. the decision the Doctor's going to ultimately have to make. Because in the episode Dalek, you do get a very small version of that decision that he then has to make at the end. Mm. <clears throat> at the end, it's like, if I press this button, I do wipe out the Daleks. I kill a lot of people. But some people will survive, but no Daleks will survive. But it's about whether he's prepared to commit genocide. Mm. Having already committed genocide in a previous body, is this body prepared to do the same? And in Dalek, he finds this one surviving Dalek, and he does have this choice. Do I, is the last one of his species. So by killing this one, I am committing genocide again. Can I do it? And you know, that's the thing about Eccleston's Doctor. By this point, he hasn't grown enough to say no. So he does say yes. It's Rose who says no yeah. on his account. Yeah. And it's because of what happens thereafter between Dalek and the parting of the ways that in the parting of the ways, he yeah. does say coward any day. He he has changed considerably he's between gone, those two points. He's gone pretty much back to who he really is you know <clears throat> and, that's Although, all, and that's all rose that's all rose that's the companion that's changed him that saved him she's been the savior of that that bloke and again that's never, here's a question that's never really happened, <clears throat> you've got <clears throat> what was that <laughs> what's that you made a, an interesting noise <clears throat> or something no i've got a cold oh i see sorry clean your microphone i did i did say that earlier um couldn't hear you it sounded like a bundle of snot to me Here's a question. 
when you're done. Here's a question. Pass the microphone to Brett if you're going to do that. I come. I come. I'm suddenly being like I'm at public school. I don't know. I kind of like it. Yeah. Don't you like it? I'll stop doing it if you don't like it. It's fine. It's fine. It means you're comfortable with me. So it's like we're back at public school. Yeah. Excellent. No, I was just going to say, here's a here's an interesting point of conjecture, shall we say? McCoy commits genocide on the Daleks and the Cybermen, and you know now we're getting this retconned into the storyline. Hurt does the same, and Eccleston is right on the brink of doing the same thing again. Is this a midlife crisis? The Doctor's middle regenerations are all prepared to happily go out into the universe and commit the genocide that previous Doctors would have balked at. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I think it's more to do with the writing style, isn't it? I mean, yeah, McCoy, I, I mean, oh, he is, he is a man of legend after all. He is Merlin. He is... <laughs> All these wonderfully big things, and isn't just a time lord, and those silly things. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew Carmel, <clears throat> I really am. What about you, Mark? What do you think about the uh, whole genocide thing? Mm. Because he is oh my prepared. God, is there? Yeah, uh, I know he's yeah. kind of disappeared a bit. Um, I think. With this particular doctor, because he is kind of still suffering from the after effects of um, the time war, um, I don't know. I get the feeling it affects his judgment. Obviously, you're talking about he's uh, probably letting not people formed. die on a grand scale, but things like what crossed my mind watching a few of the older episodes again recently um, on Passing of the Ways, where he kind of gets his assistant for the episode, which is Linda with a Y. And he promises her if she comes with him, then she'll be safe and she'll get away. And ultimately she doesn't. So she puts her faith in him and he lets her down. And it's kind of, there's there's always that sort of danger when you mix with him, whether you're going to come out, you know, the other end still alive. Um, But I don't know, I think. She's in EastEnders now, so she deserved to die. Oh, God. That's if she'd have stayed, <laughs> if she'd have stayed in Doctor Who, she'd never be in EastEnders. I loved Linda with a one. <laughs> I thought she was great. You were supposed to, though, weren't you? Oh, well, that was the idea. Even more. I was gutted when she got mm. walked out. But what mm. a great, great moment that was for that Dalek yeah. lineup. Yeah, fantastic. In fact, you know, that's another thing about series one is that across the board, the entire series, almost every episode. There are lots of mo you know, it is like Simon said, first album syndrome. That moment where the Dalek comes up outside the ship and you know what those three flashes those four flashes, sorry, of the lights are yeah. exterminate. Mm. But you don't need to hear it because by that time it's there. Yeah. And you don't need to see yeah, her you die. You know, it the camera cuts away just as it's all really about to happen. Mm. You just kinda get a briefest of glimpses ha- and then hang it's on. gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How do you know he said exterminate? He could have said I need a cake or anything, really. Insert tumbleweed. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Hey, you've got to have a tumbleweed um, moment. <laughs> Glad to supply it. Oh, you've missed I've me, lost Mark. my train of you've thought. Have I? Yeah, what was I saying? Anybody? You were saying the camera cuts away just at, just at the point I was where saying the series one is filled with 
those kind of blinding moments, those little moments of inspiration on mm. the behalf of the writers. Punching where the you air can moments. tell <clears throat> Pardon? Punching the air moments, he's saying. No, not punching the air moments. Moments of inspiration on behalf of the writers where they the things that they've always said, wouldn't it be great if there was a scene in Doctor Who where such and such happened and suddenly they've found places to put them and they're sprinkled right across the entire series. And whether you like them or not, bits like the aliens getting into Downing Street and rather than suddenly putting a huge great big plan into operation, they just sit down at the table and start laughing. You know, I found that really spooky and really scary because there's nothing more unexpected than an alien who's just achieved part one of his plan, not launching into part two of his plan, but just sitting back and saying, excellent, part one went really well, fantastic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Totally unexpected. And that, and that entire series is filled with those moments. And I don't think it's ever as saturated with those moments again. No, uh, uh certain questionable things, the farting, which I enjoyed and I thought was funny, but uh, I thought, is, it, is that Doctor Who? Should it have farting in Doctor Who? I don't know. Well, and then Big Brother what, as though? well. Big Brother, <clears throat> should that be in Oh, no. Brilliant. What, Big Brother? Yeah. Yeah. It does look a bit dated now looking back at it, but at the time I think it worked well, incredibly yeah, but... well. Any program is going to date itself to when it was made, so... And, of course, <clears throat> it fits your metaphor, so... Yeah, why shy away from it? You know, I said this. Did I say this last week? That by actually putting Big Brother in, you almost kind of deflect the audience's attention away from what you've done mm -hmm. by giving Rose these hoops to go through so she gets to the final. There's always been references, isn't there? I mean, you know, even back as far as the showing the Beatles on the TARDIS monitor and stuff that is relevant to that time, so why not? Why not? And then look at the DJ in... Uh, Revelation of the Daleks. Well, sale. He was kind of ageless and a mm. DJs have never been that bad way, wasn't he? <laughs> well but you know <clears throat> they've been bad but, in other but, ways apparently. Uh yeah, but it's just there. an example <clears throat> it's just an example of the fact that Doctor Who takes place in a world where popular culture does actually exist. Mm. And you know <clears throat> and it did feel odd at the time. Uh, when you heard, was it toxic in the end of the world? Yeah. And was it toxic and tainted yeah. love? Yeah, yeah, that's right. On the iPod. Yeah. And it just, it felt so weird at the time. It felt so wrong for the program. It didn't. But then, you know. It didn't feel yeah, wrong. It felt absolutely chase. and utterly right. Toxic was an absolutely perfect choice. And it uh, it got one girl in the in the place that I worked coming up to me the next day and go, you know that Doctor Who thing you've been going on about? You know, that was brilliant. I said, what? Did you suddenly change your mind? She goes, Having toxic playing while you're panning around a space station, a brilliant idea. And she watched it from then on, and that was the moment. Just like it's brilliant, actually. So I'm in agreement with Russell there. Good choice. Yeah, but my point was your reaction as a fan is to think, "Oh, this sounds utterly wrong." Before you know, you realise that it's working. But m my point is, as a fan, it's your initial reaction is, "It's not Doctor Who." But then I was going to point out, you know, Fleetwood Mac in Spearhead from Space and, like, I think it was Simon or Mark said, the Beatles in the chase. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's not without precedent. Almost anything that happens in Doctor Who is not without precedent, somewhere along the line. There are better Britney Spears songs, but anyway. 
Are you having a conversation <laughs> with somebody that the listener can't hear? No, 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 not at all. We're giving each other looks as far as a uh, discussing Britney Spears song. We are arguing about which Britney Spears song is better. <laughs> toxic or... Baby One Time. Be toxic, man. Uh, better, better written song. Baby One Time. I hope she'd go down the dumper after the first one. Anyway, I'm, this is the wrong podcast. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Tainted um, Love, of course. Incredible record. Incredible. Is there... <clears throat> I mean, one of the other great criticisms, I suppose, of Series 1 is the fact that we didn't get to see an alien planet. And the fact that we didn't get to see Rose's first reaction to seeing an alien planet because we only heard about it after the fact. Mm. Do yeah. we think that was a big mistake? Well, I, for the production, you know, uh, to afford to do that, make it work, and also make it work within the plots and everything that was going on, I, I think it probably was a wise choice, but I really did more the loss of the first planet and her reaction to it and it, it came up in one of the books eventually i think it was a slithings planet in the end or something but um it wasn't wasn't great but no i, I love the moment when she walks out into the snow she goes back in time you could have had that moment on an alien planet sure but maybe it just wouldn't have done anything for the series everything's there for a reason i didn't miss it for not being there i didn't get to the end of the series and said oh they didn't actually go on an alien, alien planet so i think it was well balanced, I think, and when it did, and of course, it turned up in New Earth, didn't it? Was that the first one? Yeah, it, essentially, yes, it was. <clears throat> Not the greatest of episodes, I think, but it, it, I think it appeared at the right time, and it was it was enough to give the second series a boost. You know, uh, as a way of giving it a kickstart, if you. Well, they're, obvious, saying... but they're obvious budgetary reasons why they couldn't do it in the in the first season. <clears throat> um, and I think in another way it works in as much as you've got more for the casual viewer to relate to. They may not... I think Russell T. Davis is quoted as mentioning the planet Zog. And yeah. uh, it makes it a more relatable programme if it's taking place on Earth and it's easier for the casual viewer to, to sort of step into it and dip their toes into the waters and see whether they like it or not. And as well as... Having something in every episode that somebody who may just be tuning in for the first time can sort of um, identify with mm. and appreciate something <clears throat> to have them to want to care about so they'll stick with it to the end of the episode to find out what happens. Mm. There's more at but stake as, as well. Yeah, but as well as that, also that first series, because, <clears throat> you know, People do say, oh, the story arc in that first series is just two words. But it's so not just two words. But because it's all set on Earth and almost everything in that first series kind of ties in, not in a direct way, but um, like I was saying, with the Doctor having to get to the point where... Uh, with the series getting to the point where five episodes in, you can consolidate what you've given the audience to that point and then take the characters off into areas where they suddenly have growth because you know in the first five episodes you've got rose is discovering what doctor who is and the doctor is this blank shell in need of finding himself and trying these things out like the grin and you know the bit where he flicks through the book and 
it's like he's trying on being the doctor and then from dalek onwards she's growing and proving herself and he's growing back into being the doctor and because you've got this tie through the entire thing of the sort of earth timeline and all these adventures that they've been through prior to that point you know in the end of the world and the unquiet dead two of the most important scenes almost and there were even add-ins afterwards i think both of them were things that russell t davis added in afterwards were the bits where rose gets to empathize with somebody that she wouldn't meet on modern day earth yeah so that by the end of the series in that last episode when she's in the chip shop and the doctor's in the far future and he's going to save people that she would never have met would never have any hope of meeting you're so far removed from her everyday existence that she can't possibly care about but if you go back through the series and look at the end of the world and the unquiet dead that's the genesis that's the root of where she starts caring and empathizing about people that she shouldn't be and that we would be, to be perfectly frank and this through line throughout the entire series is what russell t davis gives it by not taking it away from earth by keeping it rooted on earth and by keeping the whole thing developing from one episode to the next so that by the time you get to series two you get sidesteps you know you go off and you have an adventure that doesn't have any bearing but in series one, everything has a bearing so that by the end, you know, that week in between Bad Wolf and Parting of the Ways when there was the countdown on the BBC clock. Yeah. Oh, astonishing. <laughs> you couldn't have had that in the second year because it just didn't matter so much. <clears throat> because those 12 episodes up to that week's gap where that mm. countdown clock, all those 12 episodes had taken you to that point. Yeah. And you said about um, Rose learning to empathise. One problem I have got with the character is the way she treats Mickey is pretty bad. Yeah. Like a boomtown. And it's, you know, it's made I think very clear Mickey's that he's a bit second of a best. Prat anyway, isn't he, really? Well, he is, but... <laughs> he is, but she should not, not care about him. Yeah. But, you know, I think Russ T. Davis does write to, like, flawed humans, mm. and I think he's well aware of what he's doing there. Yeah. And, of course, in Series 2, when Mickey comes in, he gives her another floor instead, which is basically John Pertwee's floor in Planet of the Spiders, isn't it? She gets too big for her own boots, mm -hmm. and she needs punishing by being left behind on the other planet. Yeah, exactly. But, you so know, she, we've got to... Yeah, but, but right by the very end. But her mm. flaw in the first series is that suddenly she finds she can care about all these other people, but in doing so, she leaves caring about Mickey behind. Yeah. But she was always shown to be slightly selfish right from the offset, really. I mean, when you yeah. look at the fact that she is upset about the, the doctor pulling the Auton Mickey's head off and, oh, my God, I'm going to have to tell his mum and things. You know, she's not busting, busting out crying, is she, as a character? She's kind of like, oh, God, she's okay. She's worried I'm, about herself. I'm going, to, I'm going to have to do this and deal with this. And also we've mm. got to, anyway, what's the TARDIS all about? You can, it's brilliant acting of, of somebody who is actually essentially a teenager thinks about themselves quite a lot it does make her yeah. a more complex character but yeah it just uh it's true to life though because i mean that sort of age that she's at you you do have these relationships where you kind of coast you just find a, a partner who you just spend time with and you just coast along you say well i've, I've literally <laughs> this is this is giving away far too much about myself but i've had a girlfriend before who said well i might as well go out with you because i've got nothing else better to do and it, 
Nice. <laughs> nice. I know, lovely. Lovely. They say that, romance is dead. I know, that went down down, down very well. <laughs> Did wonders for my confidence. Um mm. Yeah, so the same thing's happening there. She's coasting with Mickey. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, the, the point is, though, that she is a spoiled teenager who does get everything pretty much her own way until she meets the Doctor, and then she learns about being a, a fully rounded human being, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she's pretty demanding. I mean, she demands answers, and, you know, that shows her intelligence and curiosity. But, I mean, she And then does... in Father's Day, she demands something a lot worse. You know, she's not... She's not perfect. She's not she's not cured of being a spoiled teenager by any stretch of the imagination. Mind you, probably a bigger problem in the father in Father's Day is that the doctor by this point is so desperate to um I don't know, impress her yeah, yeah. that he acquiesces to her demands. Good word. Demands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Uh, and you do get then after that. I mean, this is the great, another great thing about th- what I was saying about the through line of the story of this series is that every time she gets an obstacle that she overcomes, <clears throat> then she'll get another one. But the next one will relate to the last one. If you look at what happens in Father's Day, where she does make those demands and the doctor does acquiesce to them because he wants to impress her, and then his realisation in that episode is, oh no, I've got to not do that. And her realisation in that episode is, oh no, I've got to not make those demands. And then in the very next episode, you throw in Captain Jack into the mix, and all of a sudden, you turn everything that you've just learned on its head. Uh, As much as I love Captain Jack, and actually I do, and a lot of people don't, um, that was a bit of a weird move, wasn't it, for the series to suddenly throw him yeah, in Yeah, but it wasn't if you <clears throat> take into account what I've just said. Because it was the cap- character of Captain Jack coming in that makes the Doctor's you know, sudden understanding by the end of Episode 8 and Rose's as well. It makes those stroke not irrelevant, but it makes those something that you have to put to one side and suddenly find something else in yourself. It's the whole thing is a process, a process, sorry. Oh, dear. Watch, I've been listening to too many American podcasts. <laughs> but you know what I mean? The whole thing is a process. And, it, 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 you know, Father's Day could have been the end of the process. By the end of Father's Day, they have both got to a point whereby you can have Bad Wolf and Parting of the Ways, so you need to throw them a googly. Yeah, no, and you Captain were, Jack is that googly. You're right, sorry, I agree with you. Yeah, completely. Is that a euphemism? Googly. It will be in a minute. (laughs) Um, Can I just ask, was Captain Jack, he was a Stephen Moffat creation? No, he was a Russell T. Davis. And he was just planted into that story, yes? Mm. Yes. All right, that makes Mm. more sense in my head. Because I've always had real... I read somewhere about him being a Stephen Moffat creation. I thought that doesn't ring true. No, at Stephen all. Moffat wrote his first story, and so probably Stephen Moffat brought a lot, brought a lot of what would become the character. But no, it was always a part of Russell T. Davis' uh, thinking for the series that halfway through you get the uh, companion who won't be. And then, you know, a couple of stories after that, you get the companion who will. And, you know, he's thinking along the lines of where are we taking these characters the whole time so that they can learn things about themselves and get themselves to the point where the parting of the ways is, you know, is able to happen. 
also, I think he was really heavily involved in pretty much every story, wasn't he? You know, regardless yeah. of the pedigree of the writer, I think he still had a, a big hand in what happened in the, the writing of each story. Anyway, I want to talk more about zombies. Okay. <laughs> I've just done a Lee, haven't I? <laughs> um, and, you know, I said about the alien planets, <clears throat> about whether we miss them, mm. and... Well, I suppose the other big question with Series 1 is, um, not is there anything you'd change, but is, did it work? How well did it work? I mean, I'm not talking about in terms of, did it draw an audience in? Because, you know, we're watching the series eight years later, and of course it did. It worked in terms of, it worked in terms of getting an audience, but, you know, you don't have to perform magic to get an audience. Paul Daniels can tell you that. What you really need is... <laughs> did did it work? Was... Because I, I think Series 1 is, perhaps after Series 6, the most consistent yes. series of the revitalised yes. Doctor Who. And I think it really, really works. But, I mean, do you three think yes, the same? I agree. It was... That was one of the words I've written down, is consistency. It's a bizarre thing, really, because every episode or every story is wildly different or trying to be wildly different to convince us feels really different yeah <clears throat> but there seems to be this kind of is it an invisible consistency what is it that's consistent about all of it apart from maybe the direction and the producer and the vision and all that kind of stuff but you know the characters are changing there are I... characters in there there's different well i think it's that through line and that development yeah i think that's what keeps the consistency because i don't think there's been a series since then where you've had that amount of level of detail on the development. I mean, we've had arcs, but they're not the same, are they? This is no, no. No, I agree. I think it's very consistent, and it has a it has a look and a flavour to it as well that you can instantly say, "Yeah, that's season one." I think when you consider how much they were still finding their way when they produced series one, um, they had all sorts of problems with getting behind schedule because they they were still trying to understand how to make the program i think they did a really great job i think it still looks great now i know it's if you compare it to the the very latest series you know the effects and stuff are going to be behind what you can do now but the stories still work incredibly well um <clears throat> one final point and then we've got quite a long email but i do want to get to mm. it but one final point i would like to make is Christopher Eccleston leaves at the end of the first series. Now, after everything I've just said about the development of the characters, if Eccleston had stayed on for another series, would he have just been coasting? It's possible. It's possible. As you said, he's he's gone on a journey through that series. And you don't come to... The, I don't think... I don't really think you come to the end of that series and think, oh, he had so much more to give. Yeah, maybe had more to give as an actor, but as far as the Doctor's development as that incarnation, I'm not sure there is much more. Because I think <clears throat> what you get with Tennant, there's a great big burst of development at the end, but Tennant's essentially the same. Apart from, you know, they keep throwing things at the character of the Tenth Doctor to show off different aspects of him, but he doesn't actually develop, not until the last few episodes. And Eccleston does so much developing across those ten stories that if you were to have had another series with him, it would almost have been like, what's the point? Yeah, I was just thinking, Christmas Invasion. Imagine Christmas Invasion with Eccleston. 
And without the regeneration, yes. for example. Well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> As a 40, but if you take the regeneration out, you could basically make a 45-minute story out of it. Yeah. But it wouldn't work. No. Maybe you'd have to bring in another companion to try and change it up a bit. <laughs> like you say, no. you can't really um, take the Doctor much, that much further forward. No, you can't. I think, I think he's done. I think... Yeah. I don't know. People say, oh, it was... Never the plan for Eccleston to go at the end of the first year, but I look at it and I see it as a perfect year, and I cannot imagine it any other way. It's encapsulated perfectly, isn't it? I mean, you've got a beginning, middle, and an end, plus you've got a lovely pre-story, and it also rolls itself up at the end where he meets the Daleks again. He goes through all this this, this character development with Rose. Yeah, I mean, it's perfect that he ends there, and it would be wrong to kind of see him coasting as you say, yeah. in the next season. But if you just take out the Christmas invasion and imagine him in things like Tooth and Claw and things like that, he, he would work. His Doctor would work in all of that. And you could have just taken the Daleks out of that for season finale and put it maybe and you know, at the end of the other season kind of thing. But maybe that would have been too long, too outstretched. I, I think it was always the plan for him just to do that amount of time. And actually, it suits that doctor down to the ground there are so many things in between like when they go off and do have invisible adventures and come back in boomtown and all slapping each other and going hey hey, we're like the scooby-doo gang sort of thing you know you can just fill out for the rest of your life with big finish and books about all the adventures that they've had but um but those actual adventures would be the treading water that we Mm. would have had in the second series had he stayed on essentially from a story point of view, it's it's not like that Doctor's lacking in adventures. It's not like he's only been the Doctor for a little amount of time. Because from a story point of view, you've got you things in the first episode, haven't you? You've got drawings of him on the, on the Titanic and mm-hmm. next to next to vol, uh, erupting volcanoes and things like that. So yeah. he's obviously been around and done things. So and his ten on-screen adventures are only actually two fewer than Sylvester McCoy's. Mm-hmm. There you go. Better <laughs> even wanting more. Well, and so. <laughs> On that note, uh, we have an email from <clears throat> Mark Whiteley. Hello, and, Mark. yeah, I did want to get to this. It is very long. We do actually have several more emails. But what I may do then is record an extra uh, little bit to go on after the music. So um, after I've read this email and we've all said goodbye, if you look at your counter and there's still 20 minutes to go, it means we recorded the rest of the emails <laughs> instead of saving them for next week. Uh, and so, uh, Mark says, uh, hang on, finding the start of it. There it is. Hi, guys. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Before I move on, can I just say that your podcast is by far the best out there? Wow. And I'm talking of all podcasts, not just the world of Doctor Who. Bless you, sir. I enjoy every episode immensely, and I'm well and truly hooked. Keep it up, and thank you. Thank you. You should download more podcasts. <laughs> hang on. <laughs> no, I... Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I've just checked, and actually he sent this to several different podcasts. So <laughs> <laughs> Uh, He says, you may remember me from my recent tweets. Oh, because he and I were talking on Twitter and he sent me a link to what he describes as his, quote, hilarious Hitler parody about Stephen Moffat and the 50th anniversary. The downfall clip. He says, feel free to discuss my comedic genius and the very valid points that the evil German dictator raises. 
My thoughts about Moffat are quite strong. Short version, I believe he has tried to put his own stamp on the show way too much, and the Series 7 movie theme made the episode seem rushed and throwaway. I love Matt Smith, but I would love to have seen him under another showrunner. Moffat should move on now. <clears throat> he has the glory, or not, we shall see, of seeing us through the 50th anniversary. He has a legacy. If, as he says, everything changes after the special, then don't you think the showrunner should change too? A fresh approach with a fresh doctor would be very welcome and appropriate for a new start next year. If this was to happen, who do you think could take over? <clears throat> That, well, that's about the changing of the showrunner. That's perhaps mm. an issue we should address later on. Um, he says a little bit about Doctor Who and me. Vague recollections of Peter Davison from early childhood and television VHS recording of Star Wars had a part in it where I recorded over a short scene with a BBC trail for Vengeance on Varos. Oh, yeah, he clearly, clearly remembers Colin Baker's coat. Has a real soft spot for 80s Who. He says every era shaped someone's childhood and the 80s shaped his. Uh, I don't know why he's got such a problem with Stephen Moffat then, if he's a child of the 80s. Just, Just kidding, it. Mark. He says, are you three still there? I'm here, I'm listening. <laughs> Just knowing I was alive when these stories were broadcast, he says, makes them special for me. Also, wasn't the Twin Dilemma the first Six Doctor VHS release? He remembers loving it just because it was the first Six Doctor story he owned. I'm not. Is that true? Because that was the one that came out. Is it? Was it a Woolworths only exclusive? Ooh. Twin Dilemma. Anybody remember that? Where's Woolworths now? Eh? Yeah. Mm. Same place as the Twin Dilemma. Right at the bottom <laughs> of the path. <laughs> only kidding again. Uh, his first clear recollection of an episode was Time in the Rani. Ooh. <clears throat> he asked if that's a the only combination. Is he the only person in fandom with very fond memories of that story and the twin dilemma? Yes, you are, I'm afraid. <laughs> very possibly, very possibly. I'm not entirely sure. I don't hate those stories at all, to be honest. No, they're not awful. <clears throat> Although he does admit he has avoided revisiting Time of the Rani in case it destroys his happy memories. <laughs> yes. Mm. Plus, he says, as a seven-year-old, the regeneration scene was fantastic. Yeah, can I just say right now, do not go and revisit that. Keep it in your memory. He also, I'm going to have to skip through some of this because it's so long, but he says, as an eight-year-old, uh, Ace shooting gold coins at Cybermen was the coolest thing ever. He said he was really proud. Nobody's got a comment to make about that. I'm just having a dignified silence. I've always got a comment to make. Come on. Now, I loved it. I loved the fact that she was using gold coins and everybody hated it around me at the time. And I just thought, that's so cool. <laughs> but I didn't think about the fact that gold killing Cybermen is a stupid idea in the first place. Uh, he says, as, um, <clears throat> as an eight-year-old, he was very proud of himself for working out that, on the one hand, nemesis, basically means danger, and also that the Cybermen being silver might show up in a silver anniversary story and being right about that. He won't hear a bad word about Silver Nemesis. Uh, he calls season 26 he the best switch off season now, ever. Uh, but what he gets to is, I was nine years old when the Professor and Ace walked off into the sunset. The speech he made and the music played still gives him goosebumps. JR, you hurt me with your poor appraisal of that scene. <laughs> Take it back. Oh, what was it you said about people made of tea bags or something? 
<laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't have a problem with the scene. I think it's beautifully done. I mm. think it's a lovely scene. Yeah. I just think whoever wrote that bit of script should have, well, should have taken himself out the back and had himself shot and got somebody. Wasn't it Mr. Cartmill? <clears throat> I, I do believe it was. I, I, yeah. I, didn't I defend that piece? Didn't I say that it was actually wasn't that bad? I quite like it. I'm sure I said I liked yeah. it. Yeah. Stop moaning, Joe. I've always said it's the stuff about cities made of song and rivers made of smoke or something. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know. Oh, it's not. I have to say all credit to Mark and thank you for listening to our podcast considering you must have disagreed with a heck of a lot we've said over the last year. Oh, that's okay, Simon, because there's still another page of his email to go. Oh, go on then. <laughs> Is that the bit where he slacked us all off? <laughs> yeah. And, and well, he says seasons 25 and 6 were the best the show gave us since the first two series of Tom. Ooh. Uh, he even met Sylvester McCoy, and his eldest son gave Sylvester McCoy a chocolate bar and told him he loved him like a god. Nice. <laughs> yeah, no, he says that was McCoy took to play, it. Wasn't it? He said he t- McCoy took it very well, considering the obsessive manic fan look he must have had in his eyes. <laughs> oh, but when he got to the TV movie, he was very upset when it was gangsters shooting Sylvester McCoy that was the cause of, uh, you know, the death of the seventh incarnation. He says our recent discussion about the TV movie on the What If episode sums up many of his frustrated feelings about this atrocity. <clears throat> but when his eldest son was born, I rekindled my love and I made him a McCoy fan. He was five when the ninth Doctor hit our screens, and we haven't looked back. Although Moffat tires me, he says. And his youngest, now three, is already hooked. His favourite story being the five Doctors, closely followed by Remembrance. His fifth Doctor action figure arrived in the post today. Good lad. <clears throat> He's, and then he says, finally enough about me. Here are some ideas for discussions in future episodes. He says, obviously I'd like to hear you talk about every season or series. And I think probably we'll get around to that sooner or later. Um, oh, here's one. Season 26 in general and our views about how, whether and how it paved the way for Rose in Series 1. And, you know, the... <coughs> I'm struggling with my cold a bit here. But the way... <coughs> yeah, I know, it sounds awful, doesn't it? <laughs> But the way, um, well, what I've just been talking about, that whole development across the series thing, well, it's not quite as well developed in series in season 26, obviously, but the roots of it are there, aren't they? There are little seeds there that um, perhaps they've picked up on when they decide to make the new series. Absolutely, no question. Certainly towards the end, anyway. Maybe we could have a whole episode about that, actually, about what it was in the classic series that was most ostensibly what allowed for how the new series came into being. Oh, blimey. Well, that's an interesting one. I'd be interested to do an episode on that. Uh, He says, oh, in the way we've been talking about the Doctors, we should talk about the producers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think think we probably will as well. We did Hmm. one on JNT. I think we should certainly do some of the others, if not all of them, but... What's next, then? Graham Williams? Should we do him? No. Um, he also says, I think you should do a lost season. Um, he thinks they should do a lost season for the Eighth Doctor and bring McGann back for a full 13 episodes. 
He says this probably isn't a good idea for a whole podcast, but what are our thoughts? Should they be based on Big Finish stories? Is there even a small chance anything like this might happen? No. Yeah, I know, wishful thinking, but still, cool idea, though. No? There are rumours, Actually, aren't you know, <clears throat> I don't think it'll happen. There's rumours about McCoy being in the series. I don't think there's any chance whatsoever of a non-current Doctor having a series of his yeah, own no. between other series. You know, the spin-offs Torchwood and Sarah Jane are one thing, but having a spin-off that's actually called the same thing as the main series, because that's what it would be, a spin-off. Mm, yeah. I don't think you'd have but, any complaints from any of us about having more McGann on screen. It's an interesting conjecture, though. If they did a series for McGann between two series of the next Doctor, Peter Capaldi or whoever it is, <laughs> whatever, if they were to do a series for McGann, a sort of... Uh, you know, harking back to the past series, mm. would they choose Ted Big Finish stories to adapt, or would they write Ted new ones in the style of the new series? Well, he's probably the most prolific Big Finish Doctor, I would think. I think yeah. It would be ten new ones. There's plenty it? to mine there. I tend to agree with Lee. I think it'll be ten new ones. Yeah, because mm. the, the style and the, um, yeah. the development of the character on the Big Finish is, is too different. It, would, it I wouldn't mean, work on <clears throat> It's a nice and interesting thought to actually say which, if you were to do ten big finish stories for the telly with the Eighth Doctor, which ten would you choose and make a season out of them? That would be interesting. Mm. But no, the thing is, if you're going to put ten stories on the telly, you're not going to choose ten stories made for audio. You're going to want to tell your own stories, aren't you? Absolutely, mm. you take the advantage of doing that, yeah. Anyway, we've got a few requests just before the end of Mark's email, and we'll do those. Oh, don't make we'll Lee sing, here. please. No. <laughs> he says, um, please record at least one podcast a day from now on. Oh, bloody hell. Christ on a bike. You have to start I paying mean, us if we're going to do that. Mark, for God's sake, with these three, who are you kidding? Mm, he says, <clears throat> please make the podcast at least two hours in length for my long journeys. Oh, well, I think if we add the emails onto the end of this one, we're pretty yeah, much going to be getting there. there. Do you know what we ought to do? Um, we ought to do one for charity. We could do a 24-hour podcast up for that yeah I don't think we'd be able to actually put that out what, in 24 um, parts? Oh, Lee, you're obsessed with silly ideas like that I know you've done I am. the 24 hour radio show oh, oh, just let it lie raise thousands of pounds up your bum yeah well done <laughs> that's raised, in the past we are not doing that on the bum. podcast uh, one more request two more requests perhaps uh, please continue to talk about Doctor Who so I don't have to for many long years to come what a nice Aww. thing to say. Yeah. Incredibly nice uh, to say. But then he says, oh, and one more thing. Please could you say hi to my long-suffering partner, Holly, who was forced to watch The Five Doctors daily by our three-year-old. Let's all say hello to Holly. Hello, hello Holly. Holly. There you go. Hello, Holly. And, <clears throat> right, to our three-year-old, Harry, could you loudly shout, Oi, Harry, customer! as this will make him laugh and start looking for Daleks to shoot with his rocket launcher. <laughs> nice. So uh, hopefully somewhere on the planet, a three-year-old boy called Harry has just gone looking for Daleks. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Harry's a good name, isn't it? Now you can see why I wanted to end with that email. Thanks, Mark. Uh, is, yeah. and, and like I say, true, absolute credit to the guy. He wouldn't have agreed with everything he was saying, but still listens to it and is interested by it. Unless he's lying really well, um, but I'd also say big up to the man who who puts his fist out, shakes his fist for the underdog. You know, it isn't the most popular 
area of Doctor Who and he's saying, I love it and I don't care. And, and that's what makes Doctor Who fandom one of the best out there. Absolutely. I was going to say, I'm going through the same thing at the moment, trying to convince Lee how good the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Mo- Galaxy movie is. Yeah, that <laughs> won't work. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> it never happened. <clears throat> uh, guys, uh, well, probably there'll be some more emails after the music. But for now, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Simon. And next time we speak, I think we're going to speak about Tom Baker, so we'll speak again soon. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) 